I'm Nareet Ben. Welcome to Life Deconstructed. Nadia Ellis grew up in a religious, tight-knit community in Milan, at once under a microscope and also feeling like an outsider. Several times she picked up packed up and started her life anew. Her path always surprising, going from a PhD in discourse analysis, learning about the art of persuasion, to now hosting her own vegan cooking show shot across her home country of Italy. We chat about finding the courage to always try new things, keeping your eyes open to unexpected opportunities around you, and learning that identity doesn't need to be one thing or something other people understand. Nadia Ellis, it's so good to see you after some time. It's been a while through all this pandemic. Thanks so much for being with me. Thank you so much for having me. Good to see you. Tell me uh, what they've been unusual because you've had some exotic filming in between that we'll talk about. But what has the Corona experience been like for you? Wow, very, very unexpected, very intense, probably the biggest ups and downs I've ever experienced. I really didn't know this year would be so dramatic, both in good things and bad things. It started with actually my dog passing away the day before the first lockdown started. Oh yeah, what timing. Yes, exactly. Of, of you know, burying my dog who was almost 16. I had I've had him since he was a small puppy. So like a really a life companion passing away just before a lockdown. So first lockdown was a total disaster. The beginning of the year was horrible. And then, uh, and then in July, I had my 40th birthday. And uh, my friends, my very good friends here in Israel, they, uh, they organized a surprise weekend for me. And they told me, look, this has to be the beginning of a second uh, half of the year, which will be wonderful. You've had enough suffering for this 2020. You'll see. Now it's July, the second half is starting, and it will be an amazing half a year. And I have to say they, they were right, because then we, we went to Italy, we filmed the series, we were, I know we're going to talk about it, and everything has been just incredible for the past few months. So it's been quite a crazy 2020 so far. Yeah, well, I love that because it's a reminder too that as dark as things can seem, you never know what is around the corner. That's true. And especially with everyone feeling like that right now, like a little bit like, where is the light? When is this going to end? But if anything, this year has taught us that we don't know what to expect and to expect to be surprised. And that doesn't always, that doesn't mean for the worst with a pandemic that can be with amazing things that just take a while to, to cook, so to speak, if I may use that pun with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So take me back to your beginnings. You were born and raised in Milan, Italy, which I have had the pleasure of visiting a couple times, but only for a few days. So take me into what your childhood was like growing up there. Look, I always say that like Italy is the most incredible country in the world. Milan is a beautiful city for a weekend, but 22 years in Milan is, are way more than enough. <laughs> so if you spent only a few days in Milan, I'm pretty sure you loved it. And, and today, also, after the expo that took place a few years ago, Milan looks gorgeous. But when I grew up, it was a pretty gray city, very industrial, not the art and, and beauty uh, that you can expect from, them, from other cities. Growing up as a Jew in Milan, in a Jewish community, and a, as a religious Jew made it a bit challenging, I would say. Um, so you feel different, obviously, from the rest of the, of the population. You feel different from the rest of the country. 
I didn't particularly enjoy being a religious Jew in a small community in, in, in a very Catholic country. So it's not something that I was looking forward to continuing. And in fact, as soon as I finished high school, I felt that I wanted to make a change and, and you know, go somewhere else. Um, I had fallen in love with the French uh, language and culture. And I fell in love with Paris through the books and you know, it all started becoming like a dream. I should go to Paris, maybe I should move to Paris. I'll have to find a way to go to Paris. And basically this is what happened when I was in university. I applied for an Erasmus exchange. First time I applied, I, it didn't go through. And then the second time it did, and I moved to Paris for what was supposed to be my last year of university. And then I was supposed to go back to Milan, but I, I never went back and I stayed in Paris for six years. Oh, wow. So before you tell me about Paris, I'm, I'm curious, growing up, your family was very religious? Yes, my family was and still is very religious. I was the granddaughter of who used to be the chief rabbi of Milan. So I had quite a few uh, spotlights on me in terms of what I do, where I eat, who I go out with, and, uh, and, and it was very heavy for me. I really didn't like the, that experience as being under the spotlight of the community it was something I, I was really looking forward to putting behind my, my back. So you kind of were at once in the spotlight under a microscope, but also felt like an outsider yeah, in a way. Yeah, I, I think that was the beginning of something which eventually became part of my identity, being being different from whoever it is there is around me. Uh, back then it was difficult because when you're a teenager, it's never particularly pleasant, but, but eventually as an adult, I can see how enriching it is to have different parts of your identity. My father is American, so I also have this half and half identity and you know, being a Jew in a Catholic country, being an Ashkenazi Jew in a very Sephardic community, being uh, half American, half Italian. I always felt different. And when I moved to Paris, it was the same, by the way, and also in Israel. It's not like I ever feel I belong somewhere 100%, but that's part of the beauty. Yeah. Paris also definitely, I mean, I lived there for, for just six months, but as incredible and beautiful as it is, and even if you speak the language, you're either French or you're not. So I can see how that would feel like when you move there, you don't completely blend in also. So what did you study in university? Linguistics, language, right? Seems like a, a kind of obvious natural fit, I guess. Right. So back then it was foreign languages and literature with a minor in communication. So it was first language French and uh, second language English. And then from communication, uh, I then moved many, many years later to a PhD in discourse analysis, but that's already in Israel, so yeah. several years later. But when you studied that and, and when you first moved to Paris, having that under your belt, was that just a passion of yours or was it something that you thought you'd like to work in or build a career out of? Uh, no, I had no idea about the career that I wanted to do. Actually, my my big, big passion it had always been drawing and art, but uh, because we were in a Jewish community and we were a religious family, my parents didn't agree on sending me to an arts high school. And so the second choice was this linguistic high school that I went to, which was obviously in the Jewish school, a very good one, by the way. Uh, and so it was just a natural fitting for university to just go on with languages and literature. I always loved languages. I really have a, a very big passion for languages and understanding the culture through the languages. I think it, this is something that is very, very enriching. And so it just made sense. And then I remember my mother telling me before I chose what to study, 
that it really doesn't make any difference what I study as long as you excel, you'll be fine. And that is something that I really bring with me till today. I think she was perfectly right. Back then, by the way, in what was it, 1999, when I uh, started university, people like my brother and friends, they were making fun of me for studying languages. They were like, what are you going to do? You're going to teach in high school? Like Back then, they didn't understand that language would be the one of the biggest treasures only a few years later because of globalization and everything that happened. And indeed, it was a very good choice, but they, they wouldn't understand it back then. Yeah. Well, it's good advice from your mom also, that there's no real right or wrong. A friend of mine a while ago put it in a way that every decision is right if it's something that you make, because it's a decision that you assume on yourself and that you take and then you follow that path. And if you follow it wholeheartedly and, and obviously reevaluate as you go along, then it is by default the right decision because it, it is the path that you chose. Correct. And clearly it worked out well for you. Yeah. So Paris. Paris. Let's get back to Paris. So you move there for just a little while and then your obsession with it from afar was right if you decided to stay and never go back. Oh, Paris, in my opinion, till today, really the most beautiful city in the world. I think I, I got intoxicated by the beauty of the place. I was very happy for six years there, actually. Many things happened, many important things happened in my life. I quit religion, which is wow. obviously something very important in my uh, own path. Well, to, let's pause on that for a second. When, at what stage did that happen? How did that come about? Uh, it was very slow. It happened over maybe a couple of years, you know, me being angry about feeling different and wanting to blend in more and wanting to be like other people and not having anyone knowing me there because all of a sudden I'm not the granddaughter of any rabbi. You know, nobody knows who I am and where I come from. So it's like, okay, maybe, Fresh start. maybe I can start building a new identity for myself and, and let's, let's check this thing out, you know, and you start slowly but surely to do less and less and see if you get punished by God in any way. And, <laughs> and you don't. So you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe I can try something else. And then, yeah, it was progressive. It was really, really progressive. And then I felt more comfortable. Uh, and I didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong, really. I wasn't regretting it in any way. So it's not to say that it was easy with, uh, with my family, but... Yeah, I wanted to ask you, how did your family react to that? Let's say that it was a subject that we didn't speak about for many, many years. They asked me not to and not to go too much into detail and just, you know, you can live your life, you're in Paris, just you're, nobody's there with you. And when you come back to Milan, just respect us. So, so that's one thing that happened. Second thing that happened is that uh, once I finished my master's degree, I immediately applied for a PhD at the Sorbonne, which I started. My, um, my professor was back then the director of the Sorbonne, um, and he sexually harassed me heavily. Oh my God. And that um, made me uh, escape really flee university. This is while you were still doing your, your master's there? This is when I started my PhD with him. He was supposed to direct my PhD. He was supposed to be your mentor and guide and exactly. instead he sexually harassed you. Yes. So this, I assume, is what prompted you to, to get out of there. Yeah. I, I literally fled university. I literally just ran away and never, never came back, by the way. I was, I think, 24 or 25 by then. 24, I guess. And I figured that it was a good time to see if Maybe there's a chance of going back to my old passion, which is art school. And I went to art school. 
and I loved it. I really, really, really enjoyed learning what I was learning. But then I also realized that there were people there who were 17 who were so talented. Like I, I saw, I could see I had a talent, but then I could also see people who have a real incredible talent around me and the difference between the two. And I, and I said, okay, I have enough dreams to say that this one is probably not the one and I'll just let it go. But, but at least I tried. Looking back on that now, do you think that was the right thing for you to walk away? Definitely. Yes. Very good decision. I mean, I, I gave it a shot. You felt whole with it. Very much. I think, by the way, that this is a, a philosophy that, first of all, I adopted for the rest of my life, but, it, but also I think it's a very good thing for anyone. If you're really curious about something, if you really have a passion or a dream or something, just give it a try. Maybe it's not the right one for you and you'll have others, but... There's no point in just staying there and waiting for one day maybe to try it or being so afraid of failing. It's okay. You know, there, there are enough things you can do in life, even if one is not the one for you. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't want to always wonder, what if I had and, and so on. And it's okay if even though you have this passion, once you try it, you discover, okay, this is actually, I love this. It's a great maybe hobby, but that you know that you discover that it's not for you for life for a career or something all immersing that's exactly. just as much of a valid discovery as as the opposite absolutely and i really have to say it's not that my parents didn't agree on let on having me study arts or anything i know that they regretted also the fact that they couldn't send me to an art high school it's just that the jewish community and identity part was too strong for them to let them to let me go to a non-Jewish high school and this is what happened. So I know I can't blame them for right. that really. I know that they, they they couldn't do any better back then. Yeah, the circumstances. So you ended up working, I think, in some jewelry companies and product management. How does your path start to form in the City of Lights? Uh, I don't know if we can call it a, a path that is formed because it's a very unusual path, but that's the beginning of a path. It can be a very jagged, zigzag mess of a path. That's still a path. Exactly. <laughs> Something that really came out of this whole art school thing. They were looking for um, somebody very creative and with art skills for a very, very ancient jewelry company in Paris. They had their offices in Place Vendôme, which is one of the most gorgeous places. In very there. fancy. Yeah, in Paris, where, where all the jewelry brands are. And, um, and they were looking to make a new collection for young people. You know, they wanted to refresh a little bit the image of the company. And this is where I fit. And I didn't know anything about jewelry, really. But I just thought it was a very nice adventure. And why not? And it was a lot of money, too, and a beautiful setting. Let's just give it a try, as usual. And that's uh, that's probably the sentence that I've said the most in my life. And, and I loved it. I loved my boss, the people that I was working with, the fact that it was super creative. I could draw and I could also, you know, manage. And there was so much happening in this company and in, in my position. It was a very good position. And I got to travel a lot. And I went to Peru and I went to Japan. And, and you know, everything altogether was, it was really, really, really nice. I really loved it. Sounds amazing. Yeah. I think I was in a company for like three years which is quite a lot for uh, our first job. And then, and then Israel <laughs> crossed my path. <laughs> yeah, so at, at six fabulous years in Paris, it sounds like a dream. It sounds like that sitcom, Emily in Paris, Nadia in Paris, frolicking around the Place Vendôme, you know, with a fancy job. So how did you come to leave? So by the end of my time in Paris, I was living next to the Louvre. Like I had this 
crazy apartment in one of the most beautiful areas of Paris. And it was really a dream. And I remember walking my, my dog, because I already had my dog back then. We're talking 13, 14 years ago. So it's a French dog, very classic dog. <laughs> okay, <laughs> important distinction. <laughs> so I was walking him in the Palais Royal, in the Royal Palace. Can you believe it? You walk your dog in the Royal Palace. And, um, and there were all the Christmas decorations. And I felt at home. And I remember thinking to myself, ah, you feel home. It's time for your next adventure. Because hmm. as much as I loved Paris, as you said, you never feel like you are part of the population of the, of the people. Of, I don't know. You're, you're never French enough. But it's interesting that you grew up, you were saying, feeling a little bit like an outsider in this tight Jewish community in, this, in a Catholic country in Italy. But it's actually when you say you feel like starting home that you need to start over. Like you're constantly searching for that outsider thing. Why do you think that is? Like what does that give you? Well, first of all, I think it's very exciting. There is a part of me that feels on vacation for a very long time when you start over because you, you need to explore everything. Yeah. And there's this big excitement of discovering a new place, discovering new people, a new language, a new culture and, and everything around it. I felt home, but I, I didn't feel I belonged. So there, there are two sides to the coin. I was looking for the excitement, but I was also still looking for the belonging. And, and I knew that I wouldn't belong in Paris. Right. I had no idea where I would go to, but I just knew that apparently my time in Paris was over. And, uh, and what happened next is that maybe a couple of weeks later, I came to Israel on vacation just to see a friend that I hadn't seen in a long time. By total accident, I, I met a guy, I fell in love with a guy. And uh -huh. yeah, there's always a guy. Now we get to the bottom of this. There's always a man somewhere. <laughs> right. And that's it. It was Christmas time. I, I came to Israel for two weeks. I fell in love with a guy, went back to, to France. I'm like, yeah, okay. Why? Why am I even staying? Let's just pack and move to Israel and, and be with him and see if it works. I have to say, I also fell in love with Israel. Okay. So the, the part that I haven't um, maybe uh, explained is that because I was very angry at Judaism and this whole Jewish community thing for many years, I hadn't been in Israel for a very long time. Yeah. That's an interesting mix because so much of Israel is secular and very, very different from the community you grew up in. It's still kind of in a way confronting that part of yourself, isn't it? It definitely is. I hadn't come to Israel for about maybe 10 years or something like this. So think of Tel Aviv, 19. 98 and 2008 it's another planet and when i arrived to tel aviv i was wow so the combination of both tel aviv which felt like a very young setting and and a free spirited one and this guy that i fell in love with it just made me go back to paris and within five months i was already here in israel well, I have to say, I mean, I haven't done it as much as you, but I completely agree about the beauty of starting over somewhere else and feeling like a tourist for a while and learning completely, not knowing what is quite literally around the corner. I mean, physically where you're walking and, and learning a, a new atmosphere and culture and language is one of my favorite things too. It's something I think that the older I get I, in the back of my head, I'm like, oh God, like, will I still be able to do that? Because it's something that I would still very much like in my life. And since you have done it, those quick breaks, are there clear things you think you've learned about yourself along the way just by nature of picking up, flipping your life upside down and starting over somewhere else? I don't know if it's just about myself or if it's in general, but the first thing I learned is that you literally don't need anything but a suitcase. You're enough. You're enough for anything. 
that's all you need in your life. Amen. Yeah, and people are so scared of moving places and there's nothing to be scared of. You just, you know, you're enough, first of all. And if you're not enough, a suitcase will be enough. That's that's all you need. <laughs> and that's that's the biggest le lesson I learned, really. Oh, I love that. I will adopt that. Put it on the wall. Good lesson for this year in particular. <laughs> Absolutely. So while you're starting over in Israel, at some point you go back to what abruptly ended with this awful case in Paris of sexual harassment and go back to finish your PhD. And a PhD is, that's going all the way. That's not saying, okay, I'm going to study this for a little while and dabble in it. So what was it about discourse analysis and this whole kind of speech analysis that drew you in? What, what were you thinking that you wanted to do? Uh, I think I wanted revenge more than anything back then. Hmm. Uh, when I arrived to Israel, I was still in the jewelry world because that was the easy way to find a job here. After a year and a half, I was super bored and you know, working in an office is just not for me. And what am I even doing? And uh, how am I spending my days, nine hours in an office for someone else to become rich? What's the point in all this? And I still had a lot of resentment for this PhD not having gone through, not because I didn't want it, but because someone else, at least this is how I felt, someone else pushed me off the path. So I decided that I had to go back to, to university and finish it which by the way, it doesn't exist. Like you have to start afresh. It's not like you finish a PhD. So yeah. it was going back and start again, another PhD, which is what I did. And eventually it took me six years to actually complete the PhD. But the thing is that I, I didn't know what to expect. It was very easy for me to get the first and second degree, probably because I love the subject, probably because of the nature of a first and second degree. I really had a beautiful time in university. So I figured that a PhD would be just as easy and just as nice. Turns out that's not the case at all. The last year and a half of the PhD was extremely difficult. Writing down a 450 pages thesis was devastating. I can remember there was a time I had a friend come over and literally cook for me and force me to get a shower and stop for a while because it's so intense and so hard at the end, you know, you have a deadline and you realize that you're very far and you haven't done it properly. And then your professor sends back everything and says it's not good. And oh, it was a disaster. But eventually I finished it. Oh, I had to do a, a thesis at the end of my undergrad in NYU because I just did this, this small program that required it. And that was like, I don't know, 60 pages, like nowhere near a PhD. But I remember that distinctly as being one of the most unpleasant, anxiety-ridden periods of my life. So I can only imagine. Yeah, that's definitely the case. First of all, those are probably the most incredible years because so many things happened at the same time, which we're going through. And obviously all the veganism and the cooking things started when I was finishing my PhD. So there was a lot happening around it. During my years as a PhD candidate, I was working also on I-24, which is where we met. Yeah, as an analyst. Political, political discourse, yes. Well, let's, let's just pause for one second and use your hard, hard-earned PhD on this. Do you have any tips for the amateurs on body language or rhetoric that is like something that you would recommend the layman to, to either be aware of or to do themselves? By the way, I'll answer the question, of course, but you know, going back to the 90s where people were laughing about studying languages, not knowing how important they would be one day, when I started uh, studying rhetoric and discourse analysis, we were like, oh, what do you do with that? You just teach? 
And besides the fact that it didn't realize you could even work on television with that, which is only a side thing, nobody would ever think back then that one day we would find ourselves in the time of so-called fake news and alternative facts. And this is the time where, since we don't know anymore what's true, because you can fake it so perfectly, persuasion has become the main tool. So if I can't prove that what I'm saying is true, I have to convince you. And rhetoric is the art of persuasion. So it's more relevant than ever. And I can see it in the number of students that are enrolling in our faculty today. Mm-hmm. So it's really uh, one of the most relevant tools today. And back to the question, uh, the like probably the, the, the easiest piece of advice that I could give right now is pay attention to who you're talking to. Because even if you don't share the same set of belief, if you want to persuade someone, you have to adapt yourself to his or her set of beliefs and not yours. Listen to the person who's in front of you because you need to understand where they come from. Yeah. Keyword, listen. Good advice. So let me listen to what is the, I think, major turning point for you, although there were many. Let's talk 2014 and veganism and because I'm dying to hear how you get to living this fabulous experience where you're shooting a cooking show in Italy, something I think you never imagined that you would do. And that seems like such a beautiful fit for you. So how did this begin? I know totally the most unexpected thing that ever happened to me. Look, one of the big paths that I went through and, and understanding and studying was feminism. When I left religion, I was also angry about the position of women in religion. And then I became a feminist and a very convinced one. And out of a totally stupid principle, by the way, but back then it seemed to me very logical. I decided that I would never learn how to cook and I would never enter the kitchen because I am not the woman who goes to the kitchen. So that was a principle that I had. I didn't know how to cook anything. And then here we are in 2014, which is the summer of, of the war. Yeah, a war between Israel and Hamas. Exactly. So that's a very intense time. I am in my supposedly last year, which was not the last year in the end of my PhD. Um, I am also working as a research analyst in a Jerusalem-based research uh, think tank. And because it's also the war where most of the time at home, there's not, there's nowhere to go in the evening. And there's this show that is on practically every night that is the Israeli Big Brother. This is not to say that if it wasn't the war, I wouldn't have watched it because I love the Big Brother and I am a very, very good client for any sort of junk on television. But now that I have a PhD, I can say it right and feel okay with it. <laughs> the PhD balances out watching Big Brother. Absolutely. And among other things, in 2014, there was a, a contestant called Stal Gilboam, a very famous vegan activist in Israel already back then, a very unpleasant one somebody I couldn't stand really. And she was obviously talking about the conditions in the animal industry in Israel all the time. Like she went in with this agenda and the idea was to obviously turn as many people uh, in Israel into vegans as possible. And I felt that everything that she was saying was so outrageous that it's impossible that that's the truth. And so I made it a point to myself to prove her wrong, which is something that is uh, very much into my, you know, my personality. If I'm convinced about something, then I need 
to prove the other person wrong, <laughs> then you wonder why I went to study rhetorics and the art of persuasion. And because, you know, I'm, uh, after all, this is what I know how to do, that I'm, I'm a researcher. So I started researching the matter and I was just trying to prove her wrong. And I started this four months research during which I became more and more depressed because I understood that not only was she right, she was just telling a very small part of the story. And the animal industry is beyond horrible. It's, it's hell. There's nothing short of hell that can describe what happens there. I was horrified. I have to say, I never asked myself the question before that, how do I get the food that I get? Which was also something that blew my mind. You know, I considered myself back then a highly educated person, you know, I was in finishing a PhD and never asked myself, how do I get the milk from the cow? Uh, which is a very basic question. And so uh, after, after a while, I started realizing that this is probably the direction this thing is taking. And, and I started getting angry once again, because I, I saw myself going back to this kosher thing. Like, okay, I'm not eating kosher anymore. The mentality of limiting yourself and telling yourself what you can and can't do. And exactly. And being different once again, it was like, oh my God, once again, I won't be able to go to friends and eat what I want. Once again, I'll have to check the ingredients once again. And it, it looked like a nightmare to me. I, I really didn't want to do this. So there was my, you know, my, my moral compass on the one hand telling me, uh, you definitely have to do this. And this other part of me saying, this is going to be horrible once again. I really started thinking, how can I make this work? And then I came to the conclusion that if I enjoyed vegan food more, or at least the same as non-vegan food, then I wouldn't miss non-vegan food. And then I would be happy. I probably wouldn't break. Is that how cooking started for you, despite your earlier pledge to never boil an egg? <laughs> yes, that's exactly how I entered the kitchen, actually. That's exactly why I started cooking. Like, okay, you need to find a way to enjoy this so much so that you won't miss your non-vegan life. And this is how it started. And by the way, it started for me. I never, never in my life would I have imagined that I would cook professionally for anybody else. Yeah. That's like telling me today that in one year's time, I'll be on the International Space Station. It's <laughs> totally incredible, unpredictable. I would have never thought. It's just cooking for other people actually started with this brilliant uh, startup called Eat With, where you invite a group of strangers basically to your home to cook them a meal a, a beautiful idea that sounds so far off right now during covid days to just invite 10 strangers to your home for to share a meal and to meet each other and everything and this turned out to be a massive thing for you i mean you hosted thousands of people so what what was that like i think it's by now quite clear that i can become obsessive with whatever i start if i like it enough so i became very obsessive with the cooking thing because it turns out that it's a lot of fun and it turns out that it's very creative. So I felt my creative side was also um, uh, enjoying this whole process. And it turns out you can cook incredible vegan Italian food. I mean, that was uh, probably the best discovery. And, and I, I tried my food on all my friends and family. And a friend of mine contacted Eat With on my behalf. I would have never dared because it's very difficult, or at least it was back then, to, to be accepted as a host. They accept about 5% of people who try. And, and I just went along because, as we said before, just try. 
and maximum it won't work. And so I went, I went through with the whole process just to see where it leads. And, and I got in and I got in as the first vegan host in Israel. That was 2015. Very cool. Yes, very, very cool. And again, because I was cooking so much, I wasn't writing my PhD. So the whole thing was late. I was like, okay, I have to finish my PhD. Maybe I'll host once a month, twice a month, just to meet new people. Let's see where it goes. And what happened next is that I find myself overflowed with requests for dinners because it's not that you invite the people, it's people reserve a seat at your table for the website. And all of a sudden, I, I get request after request after request from non-vegans, by the way, because they had heard that there's this Italian dinner that if you didn't know that it's vegan, you wouldn't even guess. And so they're all very curious. And I find myself hosting two to three times a week instead of twice a month. Wow. So you can understand why it was such a disaster to finish that PhD. But in the end, I did finish it. <laughs> well, honestly, in between cooking a fabulous vegan Italian meal for a group of excited strangers and having a lovely evening versus writing a 450-page discourse, I can kind of see. You know? <laughs> yes, it was. It was so, so hard. So in the end, I, I found myself, first of all, earning my life with those dinners. That was my major salary. Because I was late with my PhD, I didn't have a scholarship anymore. I had quit the think tank back then in 2014 already because I wanted to finish the PhD and then I find myself cooking all the time. So it was all upside down and all of a sudden cooking becomes my main job. And, and I loved it, of course. I enjoyed it very much ended up hosting over 4,000 people in four years, Crazy. which is insane, like in my own living room. Did you ever think at that point you'd be where you are today, taking that whole another level to a cooking show? Never. So first of all, we're talking about, it's called The Vegan Italian Chef. It debuted this December. You are wandering around fabulous, beautiful Italian locations, tasting food, basically the dream. By the way, if you need a producer or assistant, I hereby submit my application. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> So how does this happen? How does this begin for you? First of all, I, I understood over the years that non-vegans loved what I was cooking and loved Italian vegan food. And they were all telling me, like the, the sentence that I heard all the time in my meals was, oh, with this kind of food, I can be vegan myself. And, and, I, and I started realizing that it's not that people don't agree with veganism or it's not that they don't appreciate the values behind it or they even don't want to be vegans it's just that they have no idea how to do it first of all and they, there's this stigma around veganism about the food not being good and there's a, a real need to show that vegan food can be incredibly delicious appetizing everything you expect from non-vegan food you can have it also in a vegan version and that was something that i had been thinking of for a long time like how do i make this bigger than my living room but I didn't know exactly how to do it. And then, you know, the universe at some point sends you an opportunity. You just need to know how to take it, basically, I guess. To have your eyes open to see the opportunity. Exactly. Or my, my brother always tells me, because in, in Italian, there is this expression that when you take an opportunity, you jump on a train. And, and he always tells me, you know, we're all at a station and there are so many trains passing. It's just that you always have the guts to jump on whatever train is coming. That is great. That's a great image. Yeah, I don't know if it's about having the guts or not, but it's true. I'm, I'm not afraid of jumping on trains and maximum you just get off. So this train that passed was quite a massive train. It was in August 2019, a year and a half ago. 
there is this producer called Marco Tricomi, an Italian guy, non-vegan, by the way, but a visionary, somebody who really sees quite a few years in the future and he understands that this is where the planet is going, this is where humanity is going. So he decides to produce a vegan show in Italy. It's called My Planet Vegan. He, it's a small show, but a very nice one. He is in Sardinia in his summer house on vacation, end of August, goes to a party, and, uh, you know, he starts uh, telling people about the show that is soon to be broadcast and very excited. And, and he talks to a woman there, whom he knows, by the way, because he's one of the neighbors. And she says, oh, veganism, you have to see what my friend's daughter does. So this woman is one of my mother's best friends. And she takes her phone out and she shows him my Instagram account. And he sees the vegan Italian chef. So Marco is married to a, a Jewish American woman. So he has already come to Israel many times. He's in love with Israel. And he sees, you know, Israel, Italian, vegan, all together. The stars aligned. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, oh, I want, I want, I want to talk to her. Let's, let's talk. And I receive this crazy phone call, phone call uh, at the end of August last year. That, Hi, I'm, I'm a producer. And, you know, I saw your Instagram account and I would like to. So I'm a producer. I was at a party. I talked to your mom's friend. She showed me your Instagram. I think this is perfect. Let's go. I was like, what? <laughs> And speaking of my brother, who, who's, you know, he's really my best friend, so we always talk. And I, I hung up the phone and I called my brother and I said, okay, look, I've just had the craziest conversation ever. And it's probably not going anywhere, but let's just remember this moment because who would have ever thought that one day your producer would call me from Italy? And then it did go. So what, what happened is that I, I was supposed to go to Italy for the, for the holidays a few weeks later. So we decided to meet, we met, and it was an instant professional love at first sight. Like we immediately felt we could work together. We have very different personalities, but we're very similar on a few things. And the main thing we're similar is that when we decide we want to do something, we just don't give up. Like we're Rottweilers, we just hang on the thing and we'll go through with it which was the most important uh, thing during this year, obviously. Yeah, in this case, that made all the difference because you ended up shooting over the summer during COVID in Italy. March, April, nobody could have imagined, but you guys made it happen. Yes, we made it happen. We didn't give up. We had so many sponsors who decided not to participate in the end because of Corona. We, we had so many issues and we just never, never stopped believing that we could do it. Until the very, the very last minute, we were supposed to start shooting in September. You know, I was in Israel and he was in Italy and we hadn't seen each other face to face for months because of Corona. And I see that in Israel cases are rising and there's probably going to be a, a new lockdown soon and maybe they won't let me out of the country. And so I, I called Marco and, and I said, okay, look, we're supposed to start shooting in a month. I am taking, a, I'm, I'm flying to Italy in four days. I'm buying a ticket. Just make it happen. We have to start shooting now because otherwise it will be too late. And I have to say he, he was amazing in this because he, he had to change all the plans and he did and he managed and we started shooting right away. And, and luckily so, because I was in Italy for two months. I skipped the lockdown here in Israel. Indeed, there was a lockdown and I was there where things were going pretty well. 
And then I left Italy one week before their lockdown started. So I, we really caught the only two months in which we could have filmed. Now that you're, I mean, you've shot the show, you're in this place that for so many reasons you would have never imagined you're doing it, whether it's veganism itself or cooking in the first place or being on TV. I mean, all these different things. Do you feel now versus earlier in your life or other times when you were doing other things, a sense of being sort of more in the right place, like anything has sort of come full circle in a way? Yes. First of all, I see how so many things that I did in my life all of a sudden make sense. Like they all come together. The fact that I studied persuasion, that's part of knowing how to speak in front of a camera and, and talking about veganism to begin with. The show has to be very light on the one hand and very nice. You have to fall in love with Italy and with the food. But on the other hand, I'm also giving important messages in the show and it has to be done in a very delicate way. Right. The experience, of course, that I got while uh, working on I-24, uh, the fact that I was comfortable in front of a camera. Otherwise, you can't play someone in front of a camera all of a sudden and be you know, comfortable with it. Sure. So that was the TV thing. So the fact that I learned, uh, obviously, how to cook and that today I feel very comfortable in that role, which is something I wasn't feeling comfortable with at all at the beginning. I felt like I was a total imposter. I, uh, me, the chef? Like, where? Why? How? But I don't feel that I am in my, in my last station. Like, I don't feel this is the role that I'm supposed to have for the rest of my life. First of all, because I still have two roles. Um, we, we didn't speak about it, but I, I've been teaching at Tel Aviv University for, for four years now. So ever since I finished my PhD, I actually started teaching rhetoric. So I still have two different roles in my life. On the one hand, I'm, I'm the vegan Italian chef, and on the other hand, I teach. It's actually very funny when some students discover that I am also the one on TV. Uh, that happens. <laughs> and um, there are still parts that maybe haven't completely come together, but I also don't think that, that they will have to. I think it's okay to have different identities, and maybe this is how we get back to the very beginning, speaking of identities. Uh, the reason why I decided to stay in Israel, despite the fact that with that famous guy that I fell in love with, it was over within six months, and I've been here for 12 years, uh, is that I really feel that there's at least one part of my identity here that uh, is at home, which is obviously the Jewish part. I'm totally secular, but Jewish identity is still very strong in me, so I do feel at home from that point of view. You know, I'll always have to explain myself somehow. I'll always have different identities. So I'm, I'm both Italian and Jewish and half American somehow. And, you know, I'm still different from Israelis, obviously. But there is a part of me that really feels home. And this whole thing of having different identities in the end, I think, has become my identity. So today I'm a lecturer at university and the vegan Italian chef on TV. Very different, but I guess that's just who I am. I love that. I really connect with that personally. I think that is a great lesson. I also grew up kind of between places and languages and was always thinking, well, there's this part of my identity and there's that. And, you know, I have a very creative side and I also have spent so many years in news and broadcasting. And this notion that we have to choose that one lane and define ourselves in one clear way, which we're just often needed to because when you introduce yourself to people, when you have a LinkedIn profile, whatever it is, so many times we're asked to sort of present ourselves in this very simple black and white, what do you do, who are you kind of way. And I think that lesson that your identity can be so many different things that you don't have to choose, that it's 
it's beautiful to have that combination of different things to sort of come to peace with that. And also your kind of lessons of not being afraid to try and to just jump on the train and you know, worst case, you get off it. I think those are really great lessons that everyone can take away and really important to open ourselves up to possibility and not stick ourselves in one box or let other people stick ourselves in one box. Definitely. And if I may, I would also add that it really doesn't matter whether the train looks like, you know, first class, super luxurious Ferrari train, like being a university lecturer, or it looks like a less fabulous train and not good enough like being a cook let's not use the word chef let's let's use the word cook so many people over the years have asked me do you have a phd why are you cooking for people because i love cooking for people who cares who cares if a phd or if you don't have a phd it doesn't it doesn't matter so you may be you know, a, a neurosurgeon, but if what you like is being a hairdresser, then be it. Who cares? Like, who do you have to prove anything to? Amen. At the end of the day, if you're doing it for other people, you're never going to be happy. Well, everybody look out for The Vegan Italian Chef, which is one part of uh, a beautiful life story that is very much still in process. And I'm excited to see what the next trains are. And I'm going to take that advice with me going forward. I think that's really important. Nadia, Ellis, thank you so much for sharing that journey. And now I'm gonna, I don't know, I have to go make pasta or something because all this talking about it <laughs> has given me a craving. Give me your address, I'll send you some. I will do that. I have some requests. Perfect, <laughs> will do. Great, thank you so much, Nadia. Thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and send us your thoughts. Any questions that you want answered or women you'd like to hear from, write me on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And coming up next week, a different story than what you've heard before on the podcast. Musician, composer, and coach Bridget Kalin grew up thinking music wasn't a serious enough job, but cancer ended up steering her in a direction she never thought she could go. I think I found myself taking notes, which is funny because I think I was kind of judgy at the time, like being mom, you don't get to do everything you want. Now I feel like that's what I'm doing now is just kind of saying, you know what? Life is short, just classic, you know, face death in the face and decide to do the things you love all of the time. I'm Nuri Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.